the number one thing you have to index on is bringing great people yeah. around really early on. Yeah. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 30, and today's guests are Chloe Songer and Stuart Allum. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by two special guests, Chloe Sanger and Stuart Alam, co-founders of Thousandfell, a New York-based sneaker company which offers a line of biodegradable shoes with the goal of changing how footwear is produced and consumed. Stuart and Chloe, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, I'm glad that we could finally get together and and do this. Um, I met you both. I was going back into uh, some of my old emails, and I I think I met you both um, in the middle of or towards the end of 2018. It was in a coffee shop in in New York City. We had been introduced by kind of a mutual friend, I guess. And and I remember walking out of there and saying to myself, "These guys are going to do it." They are going to kill it. And it's, it's now been, you know, two and a half years and it's going to be a, a, a good show here. Can't wait to hear how you've been doing and, and how your business is progressing. But, but first, you know, we're, we're recording this in February, 2021. How are you and your families doing? They're doing great. Thanks for asking. It's been a tough year, but my family's luckily all healthy right now. Yeah. Fortunately, everybody's safe and healthy. Okay, that's great. So I like to jump in to these uh, shows, and I'm going to change it up a bit. Can you tell us, for each of you, something that is kind of remarkable or fascinating about either your upbringing or your professional life? Just something to give the listeners a little flavor about Chloe and Stuart. Yeah, I think something for both of us, and Stu will kind of lean in and talk to you about his, his early career and what's remarkable about that, but we met eight years ago in China. So we both started our careers in and out of Asia and mainland China in particular. And that to us is, especially looking back and especially with what we're doing now, continues day to day to be foundational. I, I lived in Wuhan for my first year in China uh, and then in Shanghai for the rest of the two. So I was in China in some in summation about three years um, in Shanghai the rest of the time. But what was great about that was, and also unique is I had started with everything from Vogue China in and out of Vogue China, Condé Nast for a year, working for a startup brand under a big retail family um, and then working at Gap, but got to see a real breadth of production and manufacturing and fabric sourcing and early stage startup life really early on, really close to the means of production, which continues really to shape how we think about business and retail and manufacturing and why we were able to jump in and build a supply chain. Quick background. I don't know if I had left the continental United States uh, until I boarded a plane uh, oh, to yeah. move to Asia, sight unseen. Uh, so it was a it was a big uh, shock and transition, but one that really shaped kind of my early career. So um, did a postgrad fellowship uh, through Princeton. It um, was in Northern Thailand for a year, and then and then moved to Shanghai. 
um, and got really involved um, in market entry into the into the China market, which is like a radically different landscape across like tech platforms and content platforms, but also like points of sale, et cetera. Um, and then how brands talk to customers uh, and then really got closely involved in manufacturing and footwear manufacturing. So I spent a ton of time in Dongguan and Fujian and, and the outskirts of Shanghai, which are really sort of the epicenters of, of footwear and manufacturing <clears throat> in mainland China, like boots on the ground, sample rooms, uh, R&D facilities, like sourcing, full-scale manufacturing, across a range of different styles of factories and and we can get into it later but it's not as if there's like a quote-unquote footwear factory like there's so many different specialties and so uh, we're really able to kind of parse that out really early on and with direct experience which I think is really different than the career path you would take if you start in sort of traditional retail especially coming from the U.S. so an interesting start for sure. Absolutely. Take a step back and explain to us, you know, Thousand Fell, uh, the business model, what it is you're trying to accomplish uh, and what sets you apart from, you know, other uh, shoe brands that might be out there now. Thousand Fell, our, our main mission with Thousand Fell and why we started this is how can we help to be a part of the solution to textile waste? Uh, right now, textile waste in the U.S., so all my stats are U.S.-based, but is 17% of landfill waste and that's not counting all the waste that's shipped overseas. Yeah. So almost a fifth of all landfill waste is clothing and textile. And currently less than 1% of global textiles are actually recycled. So there's a huge white space to be involved in the recycling of things like cotton, rubber, or polyester that are in circulation. And a stat that we love is right now there's enough cotton in circulation to clothe humanity for all time if we could effectively recapture and recycle it. Um, so we're hyper-focused on thinking about being a part of that closed loop solution. How do we think about materials as a resource, not as a waste? And so with Thousand Cell, the focus has been on building recyclability into our business model from day one. Yeah. We're not 100% biodegradable. We have component parts that are biodegradable with no microplastic pollution in, in under 90, 90, days. 90 days. But the whole focus has been how do we rethink beginning of supply chain and material inputs to design products that can actually be taken apart end of life and then put back into new products. And right now, roughly 80% of the kind of weight or component parts of the th current thousand fell can go back into making new thousand fell. So we're one of the first kind of closed loop or shoes designed to be pulled apart and remanufactured shoes on the market. What we're building is what we call the next generation of sustainability. Um, and to us, that's a future that's closed loop. So where brands are responsible for end of life, and maybe that's something we can talk about you know, later in the podcast, but extended producer responsibility is something that's EPR, it's something that's now topical legally. Um, and we see as kind of part of the future of, of, of all manufacturing systems. And then one that's accessible, price point accessible and, and mass as soon as possible, because it doesn't, the, the impact doesn't happen when, you know, five or 10 people can afford to be as, you know, sustainable as possible or buy a, a very sustainable thousand dollar vegan shoe. How can we lower the barrier to entry so as many people as possible can participate in a system? So how, how does it work from a manufacturing facility perspective? I, I would imagine that the factories have to be outfitted to be able to manufacture goods in this way. Where do they get the raw materials that go into the shoes that you produce? Our manufacturing partner is one of the closest partners that we're in touch with um, kind of on a weekly basis. We had to get them on board much in the same way that we get on board investors that come into the business went down, pitched, really thoughtful about kind of the, the future of the business and, and what we were trying to achieve. 
we manufacture uh, in Brazil, um, which has a, a fantastic infrastructure um, that in sort of the early 90s was, was really laid and built by Camuto and Cole Hahn, et cetera. The value there is we've had to point to a couple of success stories that they've seen both in country and abroad um, of brands that have leaned into sustainability and the big success that they've seen. And our factory partners really bought into that, to that vision and mission. What we've done that's a little different, I think, is that there's a couple of different approaches to manufacturing. And footwear, for those listening that are, are like come from the space, is like a craft that hasn't been changed a lot in like the past 100 years. Like Volk wrapping sneakers was, you know, a, around 100 years ago. What we've decided to do is be really thoughtful about kind of the tried and true footwear manufacturing practices from a construction and technique point of view, and then be really thoughtful about removing those component parts that can't be recycled or that cause contamination um, and being very thoughtful to go piece by piece in the, in the product, insert or substitute uh, material that can be recycled. And then work really closely with the factory to make sure that it's passing all the standard like Satra testing and strength testing um, and that it still works when we're doing lasting and we're doing cut and sew as it gets worn for the next eight, 10, 12 months every day for 10,000 steps that it's holding up. And so there's some things that we've had to like work really hard on to, uh, to, to get incorporated, the adhesives that we use, the way that we're attaching outsoles to uppers. Um, those are kind of the, the, tr the traditional trouble spots. So I've been really thoughtful about, about the manufacturing process, but I've really tried to keep those, uh, those guys, uh, specifically our, our production partners, in their lane with what they do best and not having to sort of reinvent the way that they're manufacturing footwear, but being very thoughtful to how all the pieces are coming together um, and then where we're sourcing those pieces from. Your website is thousandfell.com, and um, you know I've I've watched it from the time that it uh, initially launched. It keeps getting better. Uh, the imagery is uh, really well done. The message that you're you know you're putting out there is uh, is also clear to the customer. Tell us about the products that you're selling today. Give give somebody you know a visual of what they would uh, see from a product. Yeah. So right now we have kind of our first two product lines live. We've got the lace-up and the slip-on. And currently, oh no, the black's on the, on yeah. the site. So we started with all white. White is the easiest to recycle. It's the easiest base fabric. And then white is 70% of sneaker sales, like everyday sneaker sales. So white seemed like a natural first step. And, and keeping your white shoes white and how white shoes get dirty is one of the number one reasons people will throw out shoes or toss them or chuck them after four, six, eight months. The sneakers are meant to be like your high frequency basics, like your everyday perfect shoe, 10,000 steps a day. You're wearing it to commute. You're wearing it to post COVID a dive bar on the weekend or a concert. And then you're wearing it to class or work on a Monday. Um, and so you kind of need them to stay looking fresh. And what we've found is that people are going through everyday sneakers like this two to four times a year, where they're repurchasing two to four times a year, daily sneakers. And that contributes again to waste. But the hard thing about this product category is that these shoes are really hard to donate or dispose of. Yeah. Um, they wear down fairly quickly and generally the first user is often the last. So when you're picturing these shoes, rather than like, you know, the $500,000 price point, like, you know, one-off exclusive collaboration that you could resell on StockX five times, these are the shoes in your closet that you bought them and you're probably the last one to use them before they go, unfortunately, to a landfill or get shipped overseas. Those are the shoes that we're thinking about putting on a loop and breaking down and recycling. They look like an everyday perfect lace up or slip on. They're um, a leather like material that's actually called a bio leather that we make with corn waste and recycled plastic bottles. Um, and they're super comfy. The insole is a recycled yoga mat material out of Arizona. They should just be like the perfect, like 
everyday shoe. Everyday knockout shoe, yeah. And what's the price point? Uh, the shoe, it's $100 itself uh, with a $20 material credit or recycling credit that you pay up front that you'll get shot back towards any future purchases when you recycle. So every subsequent shoe, should you continue to purchase with thousand thousand and continue to be a part of the closed loop system will be just a hundred. Okay. And then, so you put a black pair up as well. And how's that doing? We launched black. It was, it was slightly delayed just kind of with the, with the gymnastics that we had to kind of overcome on the supply chain with, with COVID, but um, it's been great. And it's, <laughs> our designer likes to say that uh, the first uh, three pairs of shoes that he would launch after a white is three variations of black. It fits the merchandising strategy. Uh, kind of a little bit of foreshadowing. There's some exciting new silhouettes that we're going to be dropping yeah. this year, new colors that we're going to be dropping this year. And we can get into it a, a little bit later, but like a lot of our, our conversations around growth are, you know, how do you offer freshness and new options to a customer and do it in a sustainable way? So colors definitely coming. Uh, new styles are definitely coming. And what's great is like, we're really focused on innovating at or below $100. So when you think about the brands that our core audience is shopping and our core audience is like 18 to 29, that Gen Z is a lineal customer. They're either just entering the workforce or they're still in college. Um, and so price, they're really buying on price and they need to make sure that it's affordable. And so we're really thoughtful about you know, how we're delivering sustainability at a price point, being kind of a, a darling of that core audience. And so from a go-to-market strategy, you know, you've got your direct-to-consumer business, but you're doing some work in a wholesale way as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? When I, the first company I ever started working for was predominantly a wholesale business, um, footwear startup out of Shanghai that moved to the U.S. But we worked with Nordstrom's and Saks and Eastain and even Stitch Fix. And so learned a lot about the value of wholesale partnerships as it comes to sort of audience growth and first purchase acquisition. What we're really thoughtful about here though, and, and kind of the conundrum that a lot of direct consumer businesses face is that when you go wholesale, you lose contact with the customer most of the time, right? It's you're not the one selling it. And so you don't have access to their email or their phone number kind of getting into it. You, you then can't resell them or, or kind of have them into that larger ecosystem. What's nice with us is that we're really thoughtful about kind of recycling and the closed loop system being a really a value driver for that customer and pulling them into the ecosystem, even after the, the point of purchase being somewhere else. And, and we're really upfront with all of our partners about that. And I, and I think they love it. They, they're not meant to sort of replace our, our larger business, but they're meant to kind of open us up to a new audience. And so partnerships with retailers like Zappos, like Madewell, uh, and in conversations with some other larger retailers as they kind of begin opening their doors again. Um, but really it's a, it's a fantastic first purchase acquisition for us um, and customer acquisition. You know, it's interesting, you know, I spent uh, seven years working for Steve Madden in the shoe space. And, you know, one of the things, you know, it was a wholesale company, we had, you know, stores and, and I ran the e-commerce business. And, you know, one of the challenges and not just there, but in other direct to consumer and wholesale, you know, businesses is that the retailers don't want you to know who that customer is really. Yeah. Now you've got that hook where you want to be able to do the, the circular, you know, loop. Uh, and, and that becomes part of the DNA of Thousand Fell. So uh, that's great. I think that would be great. And are, are you drop shipping for, uh, for these wholesale uh, accounts? Uh, it's a combination and they have their, their upsides uh, and advantages and disadvantages, right? So some were, some were drop shipping for and, and some are just purchase orders that we're selling through their site um, and then selling in store. 
so so it's a good blend and and yeah. wholesale is great because you get cash up front and it's guaranteed and and you know there's a there's a, a ton of advantages when it comes to financing inventory that way dropship's also great because you get to keep that inventory and, and sell it through your own site too at the same time so it's it's a good healthy mix the people that listen to this show, you know, we kind of have a mix. Um, it's earlier stage uh, in their career uh, because I like to do a lot of mentoring of uh, early stage businesses and and people early in their career. And then we have people that are you know more seasoned. I've heard you know Chloe, you talk a little bit about you know your experience at the Gap and and the training program that you were part of. Can you talk about that and how important that was to your career growth? Yeah, absolutely. Gap is fantastic. And I think if anybody younger is listening, so we probably doing a really bad job recruiting for thousands off from intern classes, because I'm telling every single one of them to go apply to Gap. <laughs> I probably give so much free advertising to Gap every time I open my mouth, but I, I, a couple of different things I would not recommend to transparently. I think we, we started thousand fell too young. We, we could have used three more years or five more years like experience just, and we're learning along the way and things are going great. But, you know, the more experience you have, the better for somebody who's looking to start a retail business or who eventually wants to own their own brand or run their own brand or is really interested in fashion, go learn how it's done. And what I love about Gap, and I had a mentor of mine say this to me, you know, out of right out of school, I was so excited about fashion and sustainable fashion. And I wanted to maybe start something. And she said, Chloe go learn how to sell units. And Gap is the largest American retailer. And I didn't really understand what that meant until I got into a business where we were doing, you know, in just knits alone, 150 million a quarter each channel value and uh, specialty and off price value whole, um, outlet. You're in a billion dollar business and you're, you're really starting to understand how cash flow and purchase orders and inventory management and financial reviews are handled and what a good product market roadmap looks like. And the people at, you know, at these companies, whether or not what you see in the press, and this is me not talking to you, Mark, but talking to somebody young, says that these are dinosaurs. Hey, hey, hey. I, I'm don't... <laughs> or, or, sorry. <laughs> but somebody you know, maybe hasn't been, and I'm sure you saw this at Steve Madden. Um, there are brilliant people like yourself at these businesses leading them and whether or not you, you know, you see gap is like, Oh, gaps old school. They don't get it. Yeah. Right or wrong. But they've been building a business for 60 plus years and they gap uses over 1% of the world or the global um, supply of cotton gap is a major player with old Navy athleta, you name it. And I think to be around people at that point in their career, we're impacting global systems and thinking on a global scale and dealing with, you know, my supply chain touched seven countries could not have been more beneficial early on. Um, and we still use a lot of the same formats today that I picked up from Gap and how we forecast inventory, how we think about cash flow, how we think about product to market roadmap. And you can't make that up or you no. can't really make it up well because <laughs> that's years and years and years of, of experience and people that have been in there iterating and, and thinking through how to make Gap better and so I, I did the gap management training program. It's an awesome program, um, but I would say there's other programs and, and, and really it's about getting into a big company, whether you're interested in marketing and you go learn at Coca-Cola, like one of the incredible women we're working with in the marketing side right now started her career at Coca-Cola. And now she's a kick-ass whiz in brand marketing and was one of the heads of marketing at Casper Mattresses and Procter and Gamble. So, you know, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with starting big, getting a great foundation and, and then going off into a smaller company or taking that experience elsewhere. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the CPG companies, you know, historically had great, you know, training programs for people. And, you know, you start off uh, big, as you say, and then people branch out and, and go and do other things. Uh, Stuart, th this is not your first rodeo, right? This is yeah. not your first startup. Tell us a little bit about your, your previous one. Yeah. So uh, when I was in China, uh, I wore a lot of hats. Uh, I was doing a lot of market entry for, for consumer products, but at least when I was there, the entrepreneurship ecosystem, uh, especially around consumer products, was was really booming. And I think it's a it's a a result of being really close to the means of production. Like it's a short bus ride or a plane flight away in country. Like really easy to get down and 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 visit suppliers. Uh, ended up working for for two guys that had launched footwear direct consumer. And this was like early days Kickstarter. Um, and I and I frame it up that way because now everyone knows what the platform is. But man, that was revolutionary back in like 2013. So many years ago, right? Yeah, I mean, not not I mean, a, a short time horizon, but like a lot's changed in the space. And so um, ended up coming on as as one of their first hires to bring the the brand really into the U.S. and uh, learned a lot around wholesale and logistics and supply chain and fulfillment. And, and that was huge. And that was like really instrumental. The difference is uh, to Chloe's point, I was making up a lot of these systems as I, as I went along being on the ground and, and the scrappiness there. And I, I think Chloe and I's skill set complement one another, right? Like, you know, I think there's a good balance that you have to strike. Like you need to understand basic processes and Chloe definitely brings a lot of that um, foundation to, to Thousandfell. But there's also just, you need to not know enough to just be crazy enough to go Dude figure just, it like, out. From the hip. Um, yeah, so, say, so when, it, when it comes to figuring out best practices around fulfillment or ways to streamline manufacturing processes or how to get really scrappy and like get meetings with like lead buyers, like we, I kind of ran through, ran through that gambit um, yeah. earlier in my career. And it was a men's footwear brand that's since kind of been wound down and, and shut down, but great experience and learned a lot and, and learned a lot about partners that you want to have around the business and like the core functions of a, of a retail business. And Chloe was kind of underscoring this and what she was saying earlier, but retail is really unique. It's, you have to kind of be in it to understand some of those idiosyncrasies and nuances. And so early in my career, uh, kind of being thrown into the fire and having to figure it out was, was really valuable. Chloe, I want to build just on something that you you said earlier about the fact that maybe you started this, you know, a few years, you know, too early. What are some of the surprises that you have seen? You know, we talked at the the top of the show right before we went on, you know, about uh, you know investment and and you know doing fundraising. There must be many other areas of the of running a business like this that you didn't have the experience in. So what, what have been some of those surprises or things that were tougher than you you thought, or even things that you didn't know you were going to have to deal with that you are dealing with? Oh my God, a million. <laughs> um, and by the way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like go back and like change anything, but it's in retrospect, had we had an experience in an early stage company, we might've known to do X, Y, Z. And I, I think were we, and we talk about this all the time, were we maybe one, because we started this, I was 24, 25. We were young still when we started working on it. When we actually first raised, I think we were 26 and 27. So now, you know, we're 29 and 30 and building the team and just closed our first price round. And so like, now we've got, we've been working on this for just over three years. So we met you probably like six months after we incorporated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it was early. I, I remember, yeah. you know, you know, we were just like running around. Seen the full, we were full running around so far, the city. Yeah. I don't even think I had quit gap yet when we met. No, you were still working. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So I think we met early in the morning before I like raced to my day job. 
a, a million things, everything from how do you fund a business? What does that look like? Like investment has been one of the main things we've had to really unlock because we, we didn't know transparently. We both had other startups before, like just like this idea of like starting something and like getting initial funding going and just like the momentum that it takes to bring people together. Like we, we'd both been in that position, but we, I, you know, we hadn't been at an early stage direct to consumer brand. And there is especially a venture back direct to consumer brand. And there's a certain ecosystem or way in which those businesses get funding um, that even now today, we're like finally really figuring out and, and smoothing over versus, you know, a traditional kind of just like retail startup. DTC and building this business so that we own the data is important to us. And but transparently because of COVID, we are more online, higher percent of our business than we thought we would be to start. One of the main things I think early on is what types of investment and what types of investors do you want around the table early on and who could be the most valuable really early on in building this business. And potentially had we had an experience, both of us as an early hire at another D2C company before this, we might've had better answers to those questions. Other, other challenges that we ran into, one of the things that we didn't totally understand was just what types of partners to bring around the table. So from what type of branding agency, what is brand marketing? What, what does branding mean? Why is branding so expensive? Part, like any, everything kind of in the marketing sphere, DTC, how, what is a launch? Why do brands and how much do brands spend on launch? Something we didn't totally understand is what's the difference in spend between a big DTC launch and a smaller DTC launch? And what's the benefit or payout? How do you set up equity structure? How should you value the early company? Um, and so those are things that, we've really had to work out over the past three years. What, what is venture and why would you start a business with venture backing versus muscling it on your own and starting it slower over say five to 10 years versus three to five. And so we've kind of pivoted halfway through from one to the other. The other, just like big hurdles, we raised money, angel round, just under 500K from some strategic angels in 2018. Uh, the very next day I quit my job, gave my two weeks notice. And the, not the first day I was off. So the first day we were like happy. We we're walking around the city. We're like, oh my God, we're doing this. Oh my God, how are we going to pay rent? It just doesn't go well. And then the very next day we got a call from our first factory partner in Hong Kong that he was not going to be able to work with us anymore or for at least seven months. It was a huge, it was our first like, oh, like yep. shoot moment. Uh, what do we do? The reason was the trade war had just started to ramp up footwear had um, been put on the tariff list up to an additional 25% coming out of China. You know, I think long-term it's great that we have now moved our supply chain out of China for, you know, ethical reasons. And, you know, even though we spent time there, uh, I think it's fantastic. You know, it's better for us to be building our supply chain out of China, but it was hard at first because a lot of the manufacturing tech, and a lot of our early R&D and prototyping had all been done in China for a year. We had self-funded with our savings. And I, you know, I speak Chinese and all of our sourcing trips, all yeah. of our contacts were in China. <laughs> we ended up meeting an awesome woman, Kristen Kohler Burroughs, who had been a president at KEDS and, and at Pennant Converse and all over. And she came in and helped us set up a new supply chain in Brazil. But we had to call these new investors who had invested, I don't know, three weeks prior yeah. for a launch in April and say, it might take us a year. We don't know. We need to move our supply chain. So who made that call, Stuart or Chloe? It, it was a combo. <laughs> it, to be honest with you, investor relations are like 
they're, they're people at the end of the day. And so it's kind of whoever has the best rapport ends up making the tough calls. And it's, it's kind of split down the middle. There's like a pretty clear Rolodex. It's like, all right, you're going to handle this one. The number one thing you have to index on is bringing great people yeah. around really early on. Yeah. Because specifically with us, like we could set up a supply chain and we had ideas, but we did not have good experience in almost anything else. Marketing, legal, fundraising, like we were lacking in a lot of these areas. That you yeah, need. but you know, part of this and, and just, you know, your own personal growth is understanding what you're good at and what you're not. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's oh, so yeah. many other people around that have expertise. And I, I've, I've seen so many businesses that, you know, they're afraid to bring other people in because they think they know what they're doing. And in fact, they don't. The sooner folks can realize what their core competencies are uh, and where yeah. they need help, the better off they're going to be. Oh, totally. So the number one piece of advice I give I give to people trying to start a company is find a group of, of advisors that are industry experts that know what they're doing, that are in that part of their career where they want to get back. And like, you got to surround yourself with five or six of these people across the different key verticals of the business, bring them on along the journey. And, and that's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the thing that we've done incredibly well is at least be self-deprecating enough to know what we're not good at and, and slot some really great people in there. And it starts early on as advisors and then it, you start targeting like strategic investors and then you're looking at first hires and like consultants. consultants. Like yeah. it, it, you kind of just begin, begin building on top of that initial foundation, but you've got to bring great people around the business yeah. um, that know way more than you do. And, and I, this is like an old adage, but like you never want to be the smartest person in the room, right? Or you're kind of in the wrong room. So like, it's really important for us when we're, when we're assembling team that, that we've got some really smart, really talented people around. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Let's talk a little bit about digital marketing. You know, that's kind of near and dear to me. Um, I've been following you guys from, you know, from the beginning. It, it actually, it feels like Thousand Fell is following me on digital media. Talk a little bit about what you're doing, you know, how you're thinking about uh, brand awareness versus performance marketing, you know, things like that. Digital is so interesting. I, I'm pretty sure I'm on record in like January of 2020 saying that digital is dead and everything's going in person. Um, okay. Well, we, we, we can end this podcast right no, now. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, it's, it's performance is, is moving online. People want real experiences and then March hits. And it's like, well, well, that the, the landscape is changing. And I think what I really mean, mean by that is that the strategy for building online businesses is changing so quickly because the landscape is so iterative and new things are popping up. Like new platforms and social platforms are coming, coming and going. New tools are constantly coming online. So the roadmap for these traditional direct-to-consumer businesses that were launched in 2012, 2013 is very different than a, a good strategy now, right? It's not as if you can just pump a bunch of money in Instagram and like, voila, you're the, you're the next darling of, of the industry. So we've had to be really thoughtful about what digital means and what growth means. Our early team is all, you know, focused around growth and performance. 
Uh, it's an area of the business that we don't know as well. And we're indexing on bringing really talented, smart people around to, to hack it. Um, and it's much, and I know that this is, I wish there was like a silver bullet. It was like, oh, just put money here. But it, it's not as if just funneling, funneling money yeah. into Facebook mm -hmm. acquisition is the silver bullet. Your marketing mix has to be very thoughtful. Um, you have to be very thoughtful about meeting your customers where they are. Um, and it's not always just paid digital. There's a ton of other elements to it that, uh, that, you, that you can employ. As Stuart put, we, we weren't planning to do a lot of digital marketing in our first year, uh, but due to COVID, things shift. So we, we really only started investing online mid last year and then ramping up through the holidays. So now you're like finally seeing us everywhere, which is a good sign. But again, I think Facebook is the first place we've, we've really targeted and have gone. And it is transparently where the majority of our spend goes. Um, but it's a double-edged sword because it's very expensive. Privacy changes are coming this year privacy, et cetera, and cookies. And, and I don't know what the future of advertising on Facebook looks like. And it's not totally transparently our background. So Stuart mentioned we are bringing great people around the table to help us navigate that. But what we have seen that's more important right now is content and storytelling. And so for us, what we're really working over the next three to six months to unlock and test into is what is our story? Like what is our unlock on the content side? How can we express? Like when you asked me to tell you about the product, it was like, two, three minutes long of like, here's this and that and high frequency basics and here's why circular. And when it's just a white shoe, but the story behind the shoe and the sourcing and the aloe vera and the coconut and everything in the shoe is so fantastic. How do you get that across in a two second ad versus just like a hyper stylized fashion product that might immediately be clickbait in an ad. So that's something that, that we're working on and really thinking through. And the second we can get offline, we'll be back offline. But it's, it's an interesting time for sure. So we've been on TikTok, Snapchat, testing different things, really working though to keep costs down because it's really easy to run them up on Facebook and digital. And the return is just not the same as it was. And I'd be interested you know, to see if you're seeing the same thing. But really for us, I think the new, the new era of digital marketing is going to be really clear, concise storytelling where content is really turnkey and really supplementing that with strong community influencer, gifting, yeah. word of mouth, bigger brand awareness opportunities, like ships that allow us to tell the story. So then hopefully you already know about Thousand Bell and you know about the circular closed loop and then you get targeted with an ad. Um, and it's not for the first time we're trying to tell you about circularity in a two second clip. But I wouldn't necessarily say we're 100% there, but that's, that's the current plan. Yeah, I, I, the one thing I want to add to that that I think you really talked about, the, the, piece, the nugget that we've kind of held on to over the past couple of months has really been that mm -hmm. this content needs to be shared a, a, across different platforms, right? And that platform can be an ad platform like Facebook or Instagram or, or, or whatnot. It, it can also be uh, an influencer's page or like even, and, and in, I use that like term loosely, but anybody mm -hmm. within our core community that's like sharing and is, and is part of this journey with us. And I think, I think that's so interesting. And I think when we look at sort of the future landscape, like we want that, that organic or that like word of mouth. And that's really bringing people into the community and having them amplify that same story and have brand advocates come in. And so it's, it's digital marketing, but it's, it's done a little differently. Like we're really bullish um, on that kind of being the future. Yeah. Right before you started to talk, Chloe, I was going to use the the term storytelling and, you know, around sustainability, because what I was going to ask, and I, I will ask is the cynics might say, you know, sustainability, the whole, you know, story around that um, is a marketing thing because there's lots of brands out there now that, you know, seemingly have adapted that as part of their, their core. 
Uh, obviously, in your business, it's something that you believe in, you started out with, you're building your entire business around that. Talk a little bit more about how you get that whole story out to the consumer. And are you seeing it really resonate at this point? You know, the, the folks that are buying your product, uh, I'm sure you've, you've talked to some of them. Did they buy it because, you know, it was a cool looking white shoe or did they really buy into the sustainability and, and what you're trying to do for the environment? I'll start maybe with the second part of the question first, sustainability versus style and like, you know, purchasing triggers. But when we launched, we indexed on sustainability. We were like, people are going to buy this because sustainability is now so important and the time is now and a big material story. Our first photo shoot was shoes and coconuts and plastic bottles and all of our launch press was about sustainability. Transparently, we under-indexed on style. People are buying the shoe because it's a good looking white shoe and it's a good looking everyday shoe. And so I know that's not the, the answer you all want to hear, but it doesn't mean they're not purchasing because of sustainability. So what we did in December is we sent out to six months later, X months later to our first, you know, three to 5,000 customers. We sent out an early customer VIP survey, asked them why they purchased, what they thought about that was in fell and ranking things. And what we found with that and with a couple of other, all of our testing on, you know, AB testing on ad sets that are working and ad copy and what converts and what doesn't convert, it has to start with the shoe looks cool and the brand is cool and the shoe fits well and it makes the model's angles look good or the styling in the photo shoot was on trend. Like our top performing ad of all time is one image, it's not even a video. And it's the man's legs are hanging and he's wearing pretty high end kind of like Isabel Morant joggers. And so, and so it just, it looks like a high fashion shot, photo shot. And it has a really nice, you know, lighting and color, et cetera. And I think it works so well because you can, the shoes look elevated. The shoes therefore look like they could be five, six, 700 bucks sitting in Saks Fifth Avenue. Click through rate and then conversion. I think we, I think we made like 26 sales in like half, half of last week alone on that one picture. It's a crazy ad and it's not a video. It's not talking about circularity and even testing it with different copy. It continues to work. What we then found though, is that might be the way people come into the brand. They're like, oh, this is so cool or it looks good. or I was looking for a white sneaker. And then one of the main purchase triggers, like the reasons that they actually convert lower into the funnel is the closed up story and the sustainability. Um, and we actually, we see that even transparently. If you just like take a look at our reviews, people will be like, I was so excited. I was looking for a white sneaker. Then I read the story and it was great. I couldn't be more excited. Like then I read about the recycling and now, and then I was hooked. I, you know, the way that we see it and we talk about it a lot is I would have loved, and I still would love for people, the primary purchasing motivator to be sustainability, that you could go onto a site just because they only sold sustainable products and, and care less about style or fit or fashion or comfort. It's going to start with a great product and then sustainability and then a real clear, authentic circularity program and closed messaging will in turn be kind of, you know, a true loyalty generator. Um, and a longer term brand generator than just a fast fashion product you could trade out for the next good looking product. But we're looking at that as the way to really build a true cult brand over time um, that people buy into and come back to and return to and engage with. But that's kind of you know where we've seen sustainability fall in the funnel. Do, do you see this being a lifestyle brand at some juncture? You know, uh, obviously you're early stage still, but frequency of purchase 
you know, is relatively low, even in, you know, footwear brands that have, you know, a wide array of, of products. If you don't have that wide array and you can't get frequency, that means you need lots of new customers and lots of new customers means high expense. So how do you really kind of get the hockey stick moving here? Mark, you read our mind because yesterday was a discussion about AOV and repeat rate. Right. Well, that's, you know, look, that's what this is, you know, all about. And, you know, I've worked in businesses where we had thousands of opportunities for people to say, yes, we want that or a no. And still with that, you know, the average customer frequency is still relatively low. And you can, yeah. you know, my experience, you can get hurt by talking about averages. You know, there's that sweet spot of the top of the, the universe of customers, the real advocates, and you've got to be, you know, constantly feeding um, that engine with new product, right? It's a big conversation yeah. that we have. And and the way that we're looking at it, thinking about it is, is twofold. First, I mean, we started the business, we want to be a sustainable business. We don't want to get into a, a situation where you're overproducing inventory, you're on a seasonal sales cycle, you're taking markdowns constantly. It's not sustainable for a business model and it's not sustainable for the planet. Like it's a terrible way to manufacture and retail. And I think what you just spoke through, Mark, is kind of the problems with businesses like Gap or the problems that they have where they're overproducing 40% extra inventory every year to buy to 60, you know, 50, 60% sell-throughs and then flooding the outlet store, flooding the sale rack. This idea of like, how do we manage a business where we see high growth, we have high repeat rate, where we increase basket, people are starting to return to thousand fell for a higher percentage of their wardrobe, but we're not overproducing, we're not taking big sales or markdowns, and we're continuing to feel like limited edition small batch drops. It's a balance that we're working through. The way that we're looking at it for this year is we will be dropping new product lines, but we're designing only into product lines that we'll plan to keep for three to five years that can, even though some might be slightly more fashion forward, that can be you know, a little louder, a little fun where we can play with color and we'll do small batch drops within our product lines with color, special editions, limited edition print pattern, collaboration partnership. And then with those product lines and speaking to small batch drops, every what we're gonna work on is every two months, releasing a new collection with a story. So a collection with you know, either a partnership, new color drop, um, new colors for 2021, new colors with a charity partner, new colors with another brand partner, um, and really starting to, to speak to and offer newness in a way that doesn't impact or create an unsustainable supply chain where we're consistently manufacturing new designs and taking them to markdown and creating waste that way. Out, but the, the larger question, do we see Thousand Fell longer term? So that's this year. Do we see Thousand Fell longer term being a lifestyle brand? It, the answer is we're hyper-focused on footwear today but it is impossible not to think about other product categories, particularly for closed loop. And one of the ways that we're dipping our toes in there is merch. I think we under-indexed on the importance of merch when launching Thousand Fell. Like we launched and we had a sneaker. You know, people are so excited about the brand and the mission. And like, you, you want a hoodie and you want a hat and you want a water bottle and you want a phone case and you want all the other things that scream, I'm a part of Thousand Fell. Merch has been, and we've tested, we've now just had like, one like hoodie for our community and one water bottle just in the last two months. But those have been incredible kind of, you know, add to cart, volume drivers, additional add-ons and repeat purchase for people who have the shoes and love Thousand Fell want to continue to make Thousand Fell a part of their everyday wardrobe. And so it's, it's hard not to say that we wouldn't go into other product categories, at least not in this next year, but we definitely see a roadmap. 
Uh, that's great. That's great. Well, look, we're we're running out of time here. I could stay for hours. I know you guys are are busy. Um, I think the story that you guys have uh, have told is uh, incredible. Uh, I'm I'm really excited for you and and for the continued success. And um, I wish you the best of luck. And so, where uh, from a social media perspective, what's the best place for people to uh, reach out if they have questions? Yeah, they, they can DM us at thousand underscore fell. But if you just type in thousand fell on Instagram, that's, yeah. that's you'll, it will come for, up. For some reason, we can't get thousand fell without the underscore. <laughs> so somebody listening knows a thousand underscore fell or our personal Instagrams, Chloe Marie and Stuart's Stuart Allen. All right. Well, this is great. Good to see you both. I'm glad you're well. And uh, let's catch up again soon. Absolutely. Thank Thanks, Mark. That's it. Today, we have two game balls, one for Chloe Sanger and one for Stuart Alam for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Chloe spoke glowingly about her time at the GAP training program. GAP and many other CPG companies offer outstanding training programs that can introduce you to their respective industries. You get an amazing ground floor experience that can propel you throughout your career. Number two, Stuart called out that you never want to be the smartest person in the room. Be pragmatic about what you're good at and where you need others to supplement your knowledge. This can come in the form of advisors, vendors, investors, and new hires. Bring great people on the team as soon as you can. And number three, storytelling. It's not enough to have a great product. You need to have a story, but also to be able to tell that story to the consumer. Thousandfell is carefully crafting the story of building a great-looking sneaker, but supported with the story of sustainability. They're leveraging digital marketing with ongoing testing of exactly how best to tell that story. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.